last Sunday I wasn't here. You probably know that. Now, I understand while I was gone that Corey had a really good sermon. He did, didn't he? I understand he spoke about the power of our words. That our words, the words that we use, uh, speak life. Well, well, on Sunday morning, rather than going to church on Sunday morning, I got up and went to uh, downtown San Diego and ran the San Diego Marathon. And I got down there really early. And it was 4.45 in the morning. Had to get up at 2.45 in the morning to get ready to get down there for it. It was early. And I got down there, and I had a bag of clothing that I was going to wear after the race. Because I had no transportation. I was going to figure out how to get home, this sort of thing. So a bag of clothes to, to, to dress in after the race was over. And they had these gear check um, stations where you, you check your gear so you can pick it up after the race is over. And there weren't a lot of people down there at 445 at that point in the morning. And um, so I go up to this official-looking guy, and he's you know, working at a table, and he's standing in front of a panel truck, and he's attaching a sign to the side of the truck. And I said to him, is this gear check, sir? He said, yes, it is. But it's not open yet. I said, when does it open? Then he says, right now you're just in my way and turned around and walked off. <laughs> Did not even answer me. You know, I, I, am so, I am so glad that I didn't have time to register because it was so early how rude he was or I would have used the power of my words. <laughs> but, you know, I thought about that the rest of the day. How, how the words we use do create life. Right? How the things that we say to one another, we remember those things. And... You know, James, the book of James, is so powerful because it's, it's a book that's so practical and so filled with advice for how we live our everyday life. Now, now I've titled this message today, Bring Heaven Down. Bring Heaven Down. And the reason I chose that title for today's message is, is because... Often, I think, that we are mistaken about the focus of our Christian living. When we become a Christian, sometimes we believe that the aim of becoming a Christian is so that we can go to heaven. Now, I, I don't want to deny that that's a wonderful thing to want and to desire. But really, when we become a Christian, it's because we want to bring heaven down. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning that how we live our life should bring heaven down. We should bring heaven down with our words. We should bring heaven down into our families. I can't recall a single occasion in Matthew, Mark, or Luke where Jesus ever said, Believe in me so you will go to heaven. No, he said, Follow me and be my disciple. The focus of Jesus and his message was on the world that we're living in. And so when you look at the book of James, James is filled with all this kind of practical advice about how we treat people and how we actually live out our faith. And 
today's topic, we're actually backing up a little bit into chapter 2. And I want to tell you that I think that this, this passage is so simple and so practical, but I think it has huge implications for you, for me, and what it means to be a church. Let me, let me give you an example. The question is, what kind of church do we want to become? Who do we want to be? How do we want to live out our faith as a church? Now, I will say this, that being a Christian is inextricably bound to being a part of the church. Today, people think that I, you can be a Christian and not be a part of the church, and while that may be true, there is no biblical basis for the belief that you can live a Christian life apart from the church. Being a Christian and being a part of the church is one and the same thing. They are inextricably bound. And when you become a Christian, you are accepting the call and responsibility to be a part of his church. And so in chapter 2 here, I want to remind you that James is not talking to individuals. He's talking to the church. And the church in James's culture didn't look like any other social organization anywhere. Nowhere. Because in that, in that day and time, as in our day and time, people were separated by social classes. There were slave owners, there were slaves, there were Jewish people, there were Gentile people, there were males, there were females. And people were segmented into different categories and they didn't associate with one another. There were people of influence and power and people who were poor. But in the church, the gospel of Jesus is the great equalizer. In the kingdom of God, there is no social position. All people, rich and poor, stand before God on the same footing. And because the message of Christianity was so appealing to the poor and to the slave, the church was flooded with people who were living on the bottom of life. And so when James was teaching, he was constantly battling, battling with the culture, which separated people. And in this second chapter, what he's talking about is favoritism, favoritism. And he uses an example. He says that when someone of wealth and influence comes to the church and becomes a part of the church, you should treat them the same as you treat anyone else. You should show no regard and no partiality for someone who is rich. I, I wrote this sentence down. It's probably not proper or good etiquette for church, but I couldn't think of a better way to put it than this, than to say, genuine faith does not look down or suck up. I don't know if that's appropriate, but, but that's what it means. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit by the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves 
and become judges with evil thoughts. It reminded me of the time that Rick Pitino spoke at our church. Everybody sat at the front of the sanctuary. When David Emery preaches, everybody sits at the back, or they just stand around in the lobby. Listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Proverbs 22.2 says, Rich and poor have this in common, the Lord is maker of them all. Romans 2.11 says, For God does not show favoritism. Colossians 3.25 says, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Matthew 22.16 says, They sent their disciples to Jesus. Teacher, they said, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. If we think about what the church is, the church is supposed to be completely different from any other social organization in our culture. The church must be the one place where all social distinctions are wiped out and there can be no preferential treatment for people who gather together to worship God. No one should be looked down on and we shouldn't pander to anyone because the Bible condemns pandering to the rich. Now here's how he follows up his argument. He goes on in chapter 2 verse 5 and he says, Now listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who, who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's saying it's really ironic because, you know, in the world around you, there are people in positions of power who are oppressing you, but now they walk into the church because you want something from them. You're pandering to them. Now, I want to point out something to you, that when it comes to the kingdom of God, social position Social position is not the same thing as kingdom position. What do I mean by that? When God looks at people, he doesn't see your social standing or your bank account and doesn't see your job title. He sees you as one of his children. And so in the kingdom of God, all people are equal. And if you read the Bible, it should, it should become very clear to you from the very, very beginning that Christianity has always had a special message for the poor, for those who are living on the bottom. I'll give an example. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 68, 5 says, a father, he is, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. That is who God is. Psalm 113, 5 and 8 says, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. You may remember what Mary said when Jesus was about to be born. He fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich empty-handed. 
And when John the Baptist sent some people to Jesus and said, are you sure you're the Messiah? Are you sure the Messiah? What did Jesus say? He says, go back and tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and that good news is being preached unto the poor. And you may remember that he began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor. So if you think about what he's saying here, it's true that the message of Christianity, the message of Christianity was that those who mattered to no, those who mattered to no one else in the world, those who mattered to no one in the world, who had no power or influence, mattered to God and had God's ear and God's concern. So now you look at what he says here, now at verse number eight he says if you really keep the royal law found in scripture if you really keep it love your neighbor as you love yourself you are doing right but if you sow favoritism you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers whoever who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it you know what he's saying here? He's basically saying, you look at these other sins like adultery and murder and stealing, and you think those are the big ones. But he says, if you don't keep this basic law of loving your neighbor as yourself, you're guilty of everything. Because all the laws, in a sense, are about love of neighbor. And these other laws that are broken are essentially, are essentially violating our neighbor. He says, do not commit adultery. He also says, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. He's saying that all, here's what holds the church together, essentially. This is the argument he's making. So this church is made up of all kinds of people, rich and poor, and different races and ethnicities and different backgrounds. What holds it all together? It's not doctrine. It's not beliefs. It's a practice love of neighbor see a lot of churches believe in that it's the unity of the church is held together by what we believe but that's not true in the bible what jesus says what holds the church together is the practice of love not a belief because we're always going to believe different things i want you to point out something that jesus said jesus said this he said this is the most important thing that you would love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and that you would keep the other great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said this in Romans. He said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves has fulfilled the law. Galatians, Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he goes on and he ends his argument by saying this. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. He says, you're going to be judged by how you love. Because, he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. He's talking about how we treat each other. And he basically says, you're going to get what you give. 
If you give mercy, you receive mercy. And he says in the end that what happens is, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Basically, the building block of true Christian community is understanding that we all stand before God in the same way, that we all have the same need for God. We are all created in the image of God, that we are all lawbreakers. We are all sinners, and we all need God. Now, let me, let me, that's what, that's James's argument. You with me? You got it? Okay, let me now then tell you what I think it means to us. This is, this has really impacted my heart this week, this message. Because it's really caused me to ask the question, what do I really want from the church? Now, the church, according to what I read in James and what I read in the New Testament, is supposed to be completely different from any other human organization on the earth. It's supposed to be a group of people who don't show favoritism to rich or poor. We treat everyone the same, and everyone has equal access to serve in the church, and that we are all called together from all different walks in life. Now, when I hear that, it sounds really beautiful to me. It is, it is beautiful. There's this great image in the book of Revelation where it says that at the end of all time, when Christ has had his way with the world, we will all be standing before God in the heavens, singing with the heavenly chorus, giving praise to the glory of God. And when you look at the heavens, you will see all kinds of people. That image should be brought down into the church because the church itself should reflect what it will be. It sounds beautiful to me. And I was thinking this week, gosh, that's beautiful. Gosh, I want to be a part of a church like that, a church where the church looks like what we will see when we get to be with Christ. It's beautiful, rich and poor, all people, male, female, just Everyone serving God together without showing favoritism. But then I ask the question, do I really want that? It never occurred to me to ask that question. Do you, do you know why I ask that question? Because when I look around at the church, not just our church, but the church, I don't see that anymore. Do you? Now, now I realize that churches are often uh, built um, and made up of people because of where the church is located and the geography, and you're going to draw the people from your neighborhood and where you are. But when I ask that question, I think it's interesting because if you look at how people gather to worship in America today, we tend to gather with people who look like us, who think like us, who vote like us, and where we feel comfortable. We are, we are attracted to people who are like us. Now, now, that's just human nature. But I think, I think, I really believe that the call of the church is to be something different. And we live in a world that is so racially divided and divided in so many ways. And if a church could ever get its mind around the idea 
that we are to be something different. And, and I think what that would require of me, of me, David, it would require for me to ask God to help me see differently. Because like the people in this book, I, as much as I don't want to judge others, I do. I judge people on their externals instead of what's inside. And God's going to have to give me new eyes to see. The other thing is, God is going to have to give me new ears because I'm going to have to be willing to listen to people's stories that are different from mine. You know, part of being a part of the church is, is listening to stories, to one another's stories, and to hearing, you know, how did you get to this place, and what has been a part of your life, and how, how did you get here, and how have you been treated in, in the world? And I have to realize that the way that I grew up or what I've experienced may not be true to everyone else's experience. And, and so I, as a Christian man, have to be willing to listen to the stories of others, especially the stories of people who've had painful stories, and allow their story to change my story, to hear their story. You know, the, the, church, the church that James is writing to, it was, it was really uncomfortable for them. And as the church began to grow, it became more and more uncomfortable and more and more uncomfortable. Did you know that at one point, James, the author of this letter, found himself in a situation where there was a huge debate in the church. What do we do with these Gentiles who are joining the church? Because most of the church was Jewish at this time. And then you look in the book of Acts, there was a huge debate. What do we do with these Gentiles who are joining the church? They come with different customs and different ways of thinking. Do they have to become Jews? And James was the person who was selected to be at the heart of that conversation. And he said, no, they don't have to be Jewish. We must accept them as they are. All that's required is that they confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we welcome them with open arms. I share that story with you because as the church begins to grow and expand, it's always going to be uncomfortable. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable and to know that the way that we look at the world and I see the world isn't everybody's experience. As I said a few weeks ago, when we look at a person, what is it in their story? It's always more complicated than that. And so God is going to have to change the way that I see God's going to have to change the way that I hear. And God is going to have to change my heart. Friends, I spend a lot of my time telling God what I want. I would do so much better if I just started asking God, what do you want? You know, we have such a beautiful church, and we have such a big heart. I just really believe right now in our church, if we will just open our hearts and minds to his presence and to his spirit and to ask, what do you want? What kind of church do you want from us, God? And ask him to give us new eyes and a new heart 
It's not just that people will drive all over town to be here with us. It's that we will be changed too.